0: can have your seats and if you would join me in prayer father in heaven thank you so much for uh, this morning that we can gather we thank you that every breath that we have is a gift from you we thank you that every time we can gather in whatever way we can in order to worship you is a gift uh, so precious and so beautiful and so we thank you uh, for the opportunity and for the means to be able to worship not only to sing to you, to hear your word, uh, but to know that we're doing so in the company of countless other people. Uh, Thank you for your faithfulness to our lives. Uh, Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that the privilege and the blessing of being able to pray uh, is a gift given not to those who have done it right or not those uh, who have proved themselves worthy in some way, but simply because of grace and because of Jesus. Uh, through whose name we come, in whose name we come. And so we thank you that as we come, we're coming to a king who's our father and we can bring with us uh, large requests, impossible things we can bring before you, knowing that you are our faithful Father and our all-powerful Creator. We thank you as we uh, bring to you not only the needs of our church, but individuals in our world. We thank you that you've called us as as a church and as individuals to not only care for our own needs, but for the needs of those around us. Thank you that during this unique season, you've called us to connect and to encourage, to pray, and to serve, and to be your church in uh, the midst of this world, unpredictable and Um, in in many ways, uh, things that uh, we don't know how to deal with. But we thank you that you have not given up the throne to any other, to no virus, to no sickness, to no leader, uh, but you're on the throne and so we thank you that we can put our trust in one so faithful and strong and good. Pray that uh, during this time you would help us to continue to live out your purpose and call to be your light around the world as we uh, do the things you've called us to do. We lift up those who are struggling, who've been affected by the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. We pray for those who uh, financially Financially, maybe going through difficulty, or those who are having a really hard time finding work. We pray for those who are in uh, relationship situations that have been painful, that are difficult. We pray for those who are sick because of the virus or some other form or something that comes as a result of that. Father, we ask that your healing touch and the healing presence of God would be so near to all those who are suffering and grieving. And for those who have lost, uh, loved ones and we're not able to grieve uh, in their presence. Lord, we ask that you administer to them and comfort them in a way that you alone can and help us to be uh, your body in this time. We pray for those who are taking care of those who are being Uh, who are being affected so deeply through this virus and pray you're strengthening over them. Thank you for our missionaries and our friends who are serving not only overseas, but in places now um, they've been uh, brought back home in order to do the work that... Uh, they've been called to do for different reasons, no longer in the country that you've called them to be in. Lord, we lift up these brothers and sisters to you and ask that your grace would be over them and the people that they love so deeply. We lift up um, countries and nations of the world, places like China, uh, for North Korea, for Japan. We lift up Cameroon and Taiwan and Vietnam and, and Jordan and uh, Turkey, places where our workers are places like spain and and, and Kyrgyzstan and uh, Myanmar and uh, Thailand, the, the many places where our missionaries are serving you. we ask that your grace would be more than abundant, and we lift up uh, our friends uh, in Ecuador right now as Uh, the coronavirus spreads uh, just mercilessly out there. We pray for people like Gonzalo and Pastor David Manzano and other ministry partners that you would deeply, uh, deeply comfort them and use them to be the comfort of Christ. Pray that as we continue to celebrate each week as we do, remembering the resurrected Lord Jesus, the reason why we gather every Sunday, we pray that you would speak to us through the word and show us that Easter matters today and that you would open up your word to us Pray that you would give us ears to hear and faith and boldness and confidence. Would you be with me, my gracious master and my God? Assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors of your name. We thank you so much. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, good morning, and uh, thanks so much for joining us, whether you're a regular harvester or you are a friend or a guest or you just kind of happen to pop in today, uh, it's our Our pleasure to be able to welcome you into um, what God is doing in our midst here. Uh, Here in Florida, where we are, and here in Orange County, uh, tomorrow's a big day. Things are going to start opening up uh, slowly in a smart, safe, and step-by-step way. Uh, Things are opening up um, uh, step-by-step. And so um, as we think about this quarantine time, and as we kind of time capsule these things together, um, can you take a, a moment to type in our... A message box, whether on Facebook or on YouTube, what's the first thing you're going to do? Like, what have you been longing to do that you couldn't do as a result of this quarantine? What's the first thing you're going to do when all the restrictions are lifted? Uh, what are you going to do? Can you write that for about half a minute in, in the chat box? And then uh, we'll come back together here. Last week, uh, the question was, what are some of the things that you're doing uh, during this season that's new? And uh, a lot of different things came out. I was really excited uh, to to read those things and uh, maybe to experience some of the fruit of the things that you guys have been doing during this quarantine. Uh, But as you hear about restrictions being lifted and uh, slowly, uh, but certainly I think some of us are, are really excited about that. Like you've been waiting uh, pretty much since the get-go for this day. You can't wait for, uh, to be able to see people, to be able to hug people, to be able to do the things that uh, you weren't able to do. Uh, but there are some people, and, and I'm sure it's not, just a, it's not just a couple people, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who aren't quite ready for this lockdown to end. Not because... Uh, you're invested into Zoom or not because you love virtual school or not because you're such an introvert that you don't like people and this has been really good for you, uh, but because you feel like as you hear what other people are doing, as you hear about the things that people have invested into in their own lives, you hear about what people are doing in their relationship with God, you think about the hopes and the dreams that you had for how you're going to be changed through this quarantine life. As you look back to these few weeks, uh, you're not quite ready for it to end because you're thinking if it were to end right now, man, I feel like I would have wasted this time. And, and if you're honest and, and you kind of peel back the thought process and peel back the, the layers and the smiles and all that stuff, when you think about and you hear about your friends in House Church or in your small group at um, Youth Ministry, whatever, uh, whatever forum in which you hear people share, when people talk about how much they're, they're growing in their love for the word of God, or when you hear about people who've been going and, and they're praying and their spiritual lives are, are soaring for God, um, it doesn't make you happy. You don't rejoice with those who rejoice. Maybe some of you uh, get jealous. Maybe some of you really wish that they would stop talking, not because you're not happy for them, but because it exposes the gap between where they are and where you are, and you just feel like, man, honestly, like I've gone the opposite way. As you hear the numbers of, of people coming out with coronavirus-related addictions, uh, and those, those incidences skyrocketing, and, and maybe you've gone back to some old habits, some addictions... Whether it's drinking, whether it's things that you ought not be uh, engaging in because it's not appropriate for your soul or because you're underage or whatever those challenges might be. You feel like, man, if the the lockdown were to end right now, the legacy of my coronavirus uh, season uh, would be, it's basically going to be marked by failure. Some of you feel like, wow, I'm not ready for this to end because I'm not ready for this to be what defines this several-week season of my life. If this is you and you feel like, man, I've blown it, I've failed, I've wasted it, Corona life has been a terrible thing for me, Uh, I want to bring you into the Word of God and first of all to let you know that you're not alone that you're not the only one who feels that way and you're not the first one to feel that way and you're not gonna be the last. Today, I wanna talk about the life of a man who, if not for Jesus, and his life would have been marked by utter, abject, and complete failure. We're continuing in a look at what Easter and the resurrection of Jesus have to do with our lives here on earth. And we're going to look into Jesus' encounter after Easter uh, with another one of his disciples. We're going to look at John 21 and we're going to ask, what difference does Easter make? And we're going to ask a disciple named Peter. So as you turn to John chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 14, which is our text for today, uh, I want to remind you that um, we've seen Jesus appear to his disciples after the resurrection uh, twice already. The first was a day of Easter, morning and night, all day, all night. He was, he was uh, showing himself to people. A week later, he showed himself to Thomas, who was with the others, and that's what we saw last week. Today we pick up, and it's sometime within uh, the, the, a month after those uh, the events of Jesus encountering Thomas happened. We're not altogether sure when, but um, Jesus was with his disciples on earth for another about 30 days before he ascended into heaven. So this is about within the month and we're going to pick up in John 21, verse one, and we're going to go to verse 14. And then next week we're going to finish out this encounter that Jesus has with Peter. This is God's word. uh, John 21, verse one. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard, Him say, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Well, John emphasizes in verse 14 that this was the third time Jesus appeared after he had raised from the dead. Again, first time, Easter, second time, a week after, and then here's the third time. But the reason John emphasizes this was because he's trying to communicate that after the resurrection, all of these people who encountered Jesus were changed, like their lives were changed forever. And so the question is, how does the life of a person whose life has been marked by failure experience transformation? What hope does Easter Sunday give to them? And I want to bring out a couple of thoughts here. Okay? As it relates to Peter, um, whom some would consider to be a failure. He de- I don't know if he was a failure, but he had definitely failed and failed on many occasions. The first thing that we see is what you do after you fail. Okay? What you do when you fail is more important. What you do after you fail is more important than the failure itself, okay? What you do after you fail is more important than the failure itself. In other words, it's not the failure that kills people. It's not the failure that ruins people. It's not the failure that marks people forever. It's what they do after it that could either make or break a person's life. Now, I wanna just get one thing out of the way here um, and just make it clear that every child of God is going to fail and will fail on many occasions. Some of you might be racking your brain trying to figure out, how, am I, how did I fail Jesus? I haven't failed him yet. Here's your reality. Every child of God is going to fail him. And if there's one thing that you've got in common with all the spiritual heroes of the past, present, and the future, it's not that you're awesome. It's not that uh, you can sing well. It's not that you can, you, you're, you're gifted. The one thing that defines and marks every child of God is that we will fail Jesus at some point. Here's Noah the one who was seen as righteous in all the world. God used him (coughs) to save his family. But after that, he gets drunk and he does some very shameful things that he should not do. Noah was a man who failed God and he failed shamefully. There's Abraham, the father of our faith. He's the granddaddy of them all. He's the big one. But twice he gave out his wife's phone number to other men and said, yeah, have your way with her. Not once, but twice, not when he was young but after he had been called to faith in God it's Moses who's going to lead his people and the man who would be uh, the leader of the defining gospel moment of the old testament the exodus out of egypt he killed a man these i mean i don't know if any of you have killed anybody but these are pretty bad things now here's David, a man after God's own heart. He sees a woman taking a bath that he's attracted to. He brings her and he has an illicit relationship with her. And he has her husband killed in battle as part of the cover-up. And then you find out later in scripture that he was one of David's 30 most faithful men who would risk his life for the king. The failure in the life of a child of God is inevitable and it marks every single one of us. The one thing you've got in common with Abraham, with Moses, with Noah, with David, with Pastor Inky, with Josiah, with your house church, with whomever it is, is that every single one of us will fail. So here's this guy, Peter. Now, Peter is from Galilee. He's a fisherman. So Galilee um, is up in the northern part of, uh, of the, uh, Israel. Uh, Israel. They're in the south in Judea, Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified right outside of there. Jesus told the disciples, go up to Galilee and wait for me there. And so they go up to Galilee, which is where Peter and James and John and Andrew are all from. And so they're hanging out there in this present context. But that's home for Peter. So a little bit about about Peter to help us to understand, and I want to kind of set up background a lot in this first part, is that Galilee is kind of the backwoods place It's the sticks. It's where the uneducated people hang out. Everyone knew that you were from Galilee by the way that you talked and people made fun of you. They're like, oh yeah, you're from Galilee. You're not a city folk. You're not an educated person. You're one of those dropouts. You're one of those people who don't have a degree. You're one of those people who uh, wouldn't uh, be able to play Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune because you're just not that smart. And so because of that, he's a fisherman by trade, which doesn't requires neither social skills really, you're just kind of communicating with fish and other fishermen, and it doesn't require much of an education. Right? It's apprenticeship, on-the-job training. So I, um, when I was in college, watched a modern-day retelling of the gospel accounts. It was a movie called The Judas Project, and it was kind of from Judas' point of view. But the way they described Peter. And the way they portrayed Peter was kind of like this big country hillbilly guy who wore overalls, had this big bushy hair, kind of would would chew a piece of straw, not straw, like wheat or whatever it is, or grass. He's that kind of a guy and just like big, goofy, happy-go-lucky, kind of like hillbilly Jim from the WWF in the old days. That's how Peter was. And maybe because he was from Galilee, because he didn't have much of an education and people made fun of him, he was always trying to prove himself to show his worth to people. It's kind of like if you've been watching The Last Dance, the uh, documentary about the Chicago Bulls of 1997, 98. It's kind of like their general manager, Jerry Krause. They said because he was always short and he was uh, kind of socially awkward. He always wanted to puff himself up, to speak well of himself, to prove that he belonged with the big guys. That's kind of what Peter's doing. That's kind of what he is like. And so you hear him making all these comments to show off his bravado, to say things like, hey, you know what, Jesus, um, you're never going to die. You're never going to go to the cross. And Jesus has to rebuke him for rebuking the son of God. Like who does that? But Peter does that. He's the kind of person who would do that. Peter's like, you know what, Jesus, even if everyone else has to die, uh, uh, everyone else abandoned you, I'm not going to abandon you. I will die for you. That's what Peter said. And Jesus is like, hey, you know what? Uh, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. Peter's like, not me. Everybody else, but not me. Peter was always making these kinds of claim claims, these kinds of claims and these kinds of boasts. That's what he was doing. He was constantly talking. There was one time um, in Luke and Mark, I think it's in Luke 9 and Mark 9. We We're reading this the other day as a, as a family, uh, where Jesus is transfigured on a mountain and they see the glory of God and... Moses and Elijah are there and Peter says, hey, I'll go and and I'll pitch some tents here so that we can all hang out here and have this party. And we're reading this passage and it was Elijah's turn to read. And if you read it in, uh, in, in, in the gospel accounts, it says, Peter did not know what he was talking about. It's really funny, but Elijah thought that was really funny. He was laughing, and he kept on repeating, Peter did not know what he was talking about. Oftentimes, that's what Peter did. He was a guy who was just always putting his foot in his mouth. He was a guy that if he's in your circle of friends, you're worried whenever he spoke because you're not sure what he's going kind to of, He's like Michael Scott from The Office. You're like, oh, my goodness, he's talking again. I hope he doesn't do anything, say anything to incriminate us, sort of incriminate himself. That's the way that Peter was. And so that's kind of the background of this man. Because he doesn't have much in the eyes of the world, he feels like he's got to show that he's got something and he tells people that he's something. And he boasts to Jesus that he's going to do all of these things for him. So the night of Jesus' betrayal by Judas comes. And Jesus is filled with anguish. This is the night where we see the humanity of Jesus in a way that we've never seen before. This is where um, his disciples see Jesus in a way that they've never before known. A a night of deep anguish, of sorrow, of wrestling, of grieving, of of, of questioning and, and just fighting with God over the fact that he has to go to the cross and drink the cup of God's eternal wrath over humanity. And so he says to three disciples, Peter, James, and John, he says, come and pray with me. And so he goes and he has them pray and then he walks away so that he could be alone. And he comes back to check on them and to give them some pointers in prayer. And he sees that they fall in asleep. He's like, guys, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Goes again, prays, comes back. They're drowsy again. Last supper, they ate a lot. I don't know what it was, but they're tired and they're sleeping. Jesus says, watch and pray, goes back again. And he comes back and he sees they fall asleep again. Have you ever ever fallen asleep at a time where you were supposed to be praying? You ever fall asleep in the middle of a worship service? Like we have people like that, like clockwork. There's like three or four people in our congregation. I see you right now, you're sleeping. But there's like three or four people in our congregation. Every time, right after the introduction, scripture is read within the next five minutes, they're like dozing off, right? It's crazy. So here's Peter. He's supposed to be praying and he falls asleep. There was this time that I remember being at a retreat I was in college. uh, I was at a youth retreat, and the youth pastor at the time at the church, his name was Pastor Sam. He was in his probably in his like forties, so really good with students. They all loved him, but he was he was a little bit older, and so highly respectable. He was a kind of youth pastor who would um, always wear. Uh, a shirt and tie on Sundays and a shirt and tie to youth meetings, just always dressed up like that. And so, you know, people were like, uh, had a lot of respect for him, but I was sitting kind of maybe like six feet, 12 feet away from him. Uh, We're all sitting on the floor. It was the uh, last worship service of the retreat. So it was the last morning we'd stayed up late at night. And so people are falling asleep, but not the youth pastor. He doesn't fall asleep. So uh, we've got our retreat booklets. We've got our Bibles. And as I'm listening and engaging with the preacher, I see Pastor Sam falling asleep. I thought this was a funny thing. I'd never seen a pastor fall asleep before. I was like, oh my gosh. We didn't have cell phones back then, but this would be, man, I would take a cell phone and I would take a picture and I would send it to all my friends. Oh my, Pastor Sam fell asleep. So here he is falling asleep, but he's not the kind of person to just quietly fall asleep. This was a violent kind of falling asleep where it wasn't just like this peaceful calm, but his head was jerking. And uh, one time, and this is what woke him up. His head would jerk and then he would would kind of get back into a, a more comfortable position. But what woke him up, and this is what I remember, his head jerked and then along with his head jerking, his leg did a violent twitch and he woke up. And the first thing he did... In order to cover, I, he had to have been covering up the fact that he was sleeping. He picked up his pen and wrote something in, the, in his notebook and he said, amen. I was like, dude, come on, man. Everybody knows that was a completely inappropriate time to say amen. You don't do that. But he came out with his guns blazing saying, listen, ain't nobody going to know that I did the wrong thing. That was him, and that was Peter. Peter falls asleep, and he probably feels bad about it, but he comes out, and he's like, you know what? Hey, I'm not going to mess up again. Jesus, I got your back. I got your back. I'm out of falling asleep here, but I got you. So the next thing that happens is Jesus gets arrested. And the bad guys come and they get Jesus. And here's Peter. He's saying, Jesus, I fell asleep on you three times, but check it. I'm going to fight for your honor. I'm going to show and I'm going to prove my love to you. And so he takes out his sword and he chops off the ear of a guy named Malchus. And Jesus is like, Peter, dude, what are you doing? (laughs) You're not supposed to do that. And so Jesus picks up his ear, puts it back on and says, Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And so here's Peter just building failure upon failure and he just feels like dang it i stink like what's wrong with me over the next few hours he sees jesus get arrested get beaten get bloodied and sometime during that night as peter's following jesus around wondering what is going to happen to the man that he loved these Middle school girls say, hey, that guy was with Jesus. And Peter says, no, I wasn't with him. I wasn't with him. I don't know the man. They're like, you're Galilean. You can tell by the way you talk, you're with him. And, and Peter says, no, I wasn't. And then they accuse him a third time. And just to show, no, I wasn't with him, he starts cussing and swearing and calling curses from heaven over his own head. He's trying to say, listen, I wasn't with that holy man. If I was, would I be cursing like this? Would I be calling down curses on myself? I don't know the man. And as soon as he said that, the rooster crowed and Jesus and Peter lock eyes and Peter is wrecked because of the guilt that he feels, not because Jesus made him feel bad. I don't think that was the look. I think it was a look of love, a look of just complete grace, and Peter is jacked by it and he runs and he hides. Don't exactly know where Peter went, but can you imagine what he might be feeling? Have you ever made promises like that to Jesus? Maybe you came back from a mission trip or you came back from, from a retreat or you made a decision during Lent, or you made a decision at SNF, or you made a commitment to, to somebody and you said, you know what, I'm not gonna do that stuff anymore. Like I'm, I'm sick and tired of it. I'm sick and tired of messing around with my girlfriend. I'm sick and tired of going to those websites. I'm sick and tired of getting drunk. I'm sick and tired of, of going back to those things that I know are not good for me. And, and you made a promise to God. Maybe you even made a promise to your accountability friends. And somewhere throughout this quarantine season, you failed. And you've been so afraid and too afraid and too ashamed to tell anybody about it. And it's this heavy weight over your heart. And you feel like you've, you, you've let Jesus down. You feel like you've blown it. Peter, that's, that's how he felt. And so where does he go? We're not exactly sure, but he certainly would have heard the news that by nine o'clock the next morning, Jesus, the man he loved but denied knowing, was nailed to a cross. And by 3 p.m. that Friday, Jesus was dead. What do you do if you're Peter? And what weight do you bear? For all he knows, he's like, you know what? I did this. I could, I could have said something. I could have done something. Maybe if maybe if I said I was with him, they would have killed me first. I don't know what. But but he's wrestling with this and he's living with this. Because here's the reality that not only Peter would know, but that you and I know also. Is that all of us are going to fail Jesus. We're going to break our promises. But what matters more than our failure is what we do after we fail what do we do? Because of the resurrection, there's a choice that Peter has. He doesn't know it now, but if there was no resurrection, then yeah, he could very well say, this was my fault. I've done it. I've blown it. And this failure could have been seen as final. And this failure could have been seen as fatal. What if Jesus remained in the tomb? How would Peter be able to live how would he be able to deal with the weight of shame and guilt and broken promises? But what you do after you fail matters more than the failure itself. And so Jesus has died. He's raised from the dead on the third day. And now he goes to Peter and Peter has seen the resurrected Lord and he has a choice. What are you gonna do now in the midst of your failures. He hasn't gone to Jesus yet. He hasn't repented of this, He hasn't said sorry. He's just dealing with this. The first thing that we see is that we're all going to fail. And what you do after you fail matters more. But here, what, what, is, what does Peter do? Afterward, Jesus appeared again by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter and his buddies go back to Galilee. And he says, I'm going fishing. Okay. Here's the second thing that we see. And this is where we're going to kind of walk through this text. The second thing that we see is that failure multiplies itself in your hands, but Jesus turns failure into fellowship. So here's Peter. He's dealing with this failure. and He's got it, and he keeps it, and he says, you know what? I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so they go to Galilee, as Jesus said to. And what does Peter do? He gets his six other buddies, and it says in verse 3, I'm going out to fish literally what he's saying is guys i'm going fishing and that's the choice i've made i'm not going i'm literally he's saying i'm going back to fishing in other words within that that previous month jesus said as the father has sent me so i send you jesus has given them a mission you've got to go to the world and here's peter and Peter says, No, I can't do that. I can't, you know what? My failure has disqualified me from that. I can never be who Jesus wants me to be. Therefore, guys, here's my deal. I'm going back to fishing. There's a sense of finality in the way that Peter phrases this, in the way that he says this. He says, Guys, here's my new calling. I'm going back to my old life. And that's how some of us will respond. As we try to deal with our failures, we'll go back to life before we met Jesus. We'll go back to that relationship. We'll go back to that addiction. We'll go back to that old life that we knew because Peter, Hey, I can't be, I can't be a follower of Jesus the way that he wants me to, but at least I know how to fish. If I haven't proven myself as a, as a disciple, if I failed at that, I can prove myself again. I can build my sense of worth. I can show people that I'm somebody by going back to what I'm good at, what I'm comfortable at, what I know. And so Peter says, guys, I'm going back to fishing. And six of his disciple friends say, you know what, Peter, we're gonna go with you. And so they do. But this isn't about them, this is about Peter. And it becomes crystal clear that this is who this is all about. He goes back to fishing at night, which is when the fish are hopping, they're biting, they're ready to to be caught. But it says in verse three, so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So here's Peter. He just stacked failure upon failure, upon failure, upon failure. Here's what I'm good at doing. I'm gonna go back to this, but there's another failure. This is what happens when we take our failure all these pieces broken and scattered and we keep them in our own hands. It just multiplies failure upon failure upon failure. And so Peter's beginning to realize, wow, failure has become quite a pattern in my life. I'm not very good at this. Have you ever ever been in that place where you, okay, you've tasted of the beauty of Jesus. You've tasted of his goodness, but you try to go back to your old life and then you realize, you know what? My old life just doesn't do it anymore where maybe it was a moment of backsliding and you go back to the things that you used to do, the friends that you used to hang with and, and the places you used to go when you partied or the things that you used to do when, that you know were kind of bothering your conscience when you became a child of God and, and, and then you follow Jesus, you encountered him and you go back to those things and you're like, yeah, you know what? These things just don't, just don't satisfy me anymore. The old life isn't as good as I once remembered it to be. Because once you taste the sweetness of Jesus, it highlights and it accents the bitterness of life apart from him. And so here's Peter. He goes and he catches nothing. And he's bummed and he's frustrated and morning has come. And it says in verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't recognize him. Jesus had been there the whole time. But he was waiting for Peter to fail. Because only when the nets were empty would he be able to express his need for help. Do you feel like you've come to a place of emptiness where the things that you've tried to fill your soul, to fill your reputation, to fill your heart have no longer been able to satisfy the way that you thought they once did? See, Jesus has been watching this whole time. And finally, when they get frustrated to the point of there's nothing else we can do, Jesus says, friends, y'all got any fish? <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> jacked up to me. Like he knows they ain't got no fish. They're frustrated. They're 100 yards away. Y'all got any fish? It's like, it's like you're, you're, you're watching this team play basketball, and they're obviously overmatched. You look at the scoreboard. It's 100 to Nothing. And you go up to the guys and you're like, hey, uh, how many three-pointers you made? Like, Jesus, we got like zero points. There's no such thing as negative points. We've made nothing. Because it's when they come to a point of admitting their bankruptcy that they could open their hands to receive the help that they need. Friends, haven't you any fish? (laughs) Look at their answers. So, no, (laughs) they answered. That's it he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. If he had said that at the beginning of their fishing foray, they probably wouldn't have done it. But now here he's like, hey, do it. And they do it. And it says they were unable to haul the net in because of the large amounts of fish. Well, they didn't recognize him before, just like all of the other people didn't recognize Jesus after his resurrection because he's in a glorified state. And sometimes Jesus can be a stranger from the shore calling out to you, asking you if you need his help. And you don't know what it is. You don't know why these things are being frustrated, why you're not able to, 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 to accomplish what you once thought was so easy for you to accomplish, why your, uh, your nets are empty and someone has to point out to you as John did to Peter, it is the Lord. Guys, God is trying to get your attention through your failings, through your brokenness, through your bankruptcy. And someone speaks truth and say, they say, brother, sister, it's the Lord. And so Peter's like, oh my goodness. And so it says he puts his outer garment around him and he jumps in the water. I don't know what exactly is going on here. Maybe, maybe. Peter reminds himself that on this same sea just a few months ago, he saw Jesus, maybe it was a hundred yards away, and he just desperately wanted to get to him, and he walked on water. Maybe that's what he was remembering, but he jumps in, and he's not walking for sure. I don't know what motivated him. Maybe, Maybe I would imagine that a lot of it is, I just want to get to Jesus. I just want to be where Jesus is. I've been waiting to let him know that I love him. And he wasn't about to wait for a boat. He jumps in the water, trying to outswim the boat the next hundred yards. Maybe he feels like, hey, you know what? If I do this, Jesus is going to know. He's going to know that I love him. I'm going to prove my love to Jesus. I may have failed earlier three times. I may have denied him in prayer and denied him in front of this uh, teenage girl, but I'm going to prove to him that I love him. He's going to know. That I love him. He's going to welcome me back once I do this. But if you imagine this scene, once he gets to the shore, Peter's not this picture of heroic faith. He's drenched and he's cold and he's dripping with water. A comical picture of an even greater fail than the things that we've seen up until this point. And so he's shivering as he sits in front of a fire that Jesus makes. The other disciples get there. They land a fire of burning coals is there with fish on it. So here's Peter, who's made a habit out of failing, trying to prove himself to other people, for other people to tell him that he's awesome. The one person, you know, you want to be uh, great in the eyes of the most important person in your life. And for Peter, that's Jesus. And he gets there, this picture of an epic and gigantic and colossal failure. How does Jesus deal with people like that? How does Jesus deal with people like you and me who make these promises for what we're gonna do for him, who make these statements and declarations of of God, I give my life. I give my all, I give my song for Christ alone. Jesus, all I am, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back and and then we turn back. What does Jesus do with people like that? He invites them to eat breakfast. He says, come and eat with me. It's salmon by the sea this morning knowing that all night they've been working and caught nothing. The one thing that this hungry, failed fisherman would want is a little bit of food and Jesus has it there waiting. A breakfast by the beach. Why? Well, I think if you're Asian, you understand If you know Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock if anyone opens the door and lets me in, hears my voice and lets me in, I will come in and spend time with him, hang out with him, watch TV with him, play backgammon, he doesn't say those things. He says, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus, here's a man who eats with drunks and gluttons and sinners Jesus was always talking about food. Why? Because food, Zacchaeus come down from that tree. I got to go to your crib and eat dinner with you. Why can't we just hang out, Jesus? I want to eat with you. Why? Because Asian parents know this. To eat means I want a relationship with you. To eat with someone means I love you. I care about you. I want a relationship with you. That's why before your parents say anything, If you haven't seen them, they're saying, I'm sending you food. Are you eating okay? Why? Because the language of love is food. Your parents can never tell you if they're Asian, I'm sorry for what I did. But what they can say, I made you some lamian, come and eat. That's their way of saying, I want to rebuild this relationship with you. What does Jesus do for people who failed and blown it and messed up? He says, come, eat breakfast with me. I want a relationship with you. But what Jesus does here is fascinating in ways that only he can. We'll see more of this next week, but I just want to bring out two things that Jesus does to set the scene. The first time Peter met Jesus, it was on the Sea of Galilee. They had gone out all night and they couldn't catch any fish And a stranger on the shore gets in the boat and he says, put it out on that side of the water. They're like, we've done this all night. We're professional fishermen. We don't know who you are. You're a teacher. But because you said to do it, we'll do it. And they put it out on the right side and they bring in this massive haul of fish. And Peter says, get away from me. I'm a sinful person. And Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus is saying, Peter, all you remember is your failure. But here's what I remember. I remember that first time you were on that boat and you didn't know anything, but you saw the power of God. You saw the miracle of God. You saw me call you. And here's what I want to say to you, Peter. You might see yourself as a failure, But in my eyes, the same calling I gave you when we first met is the calling that's still on your life. You are not too far gone for me. The first time Peter encounters Jesus and he's afraid and he tries to pull away, Jesus says, come and follow me. Here, Peter's afraid and Jesus says, come, come back to me, eat with me. See, Jesus covers over his failure with an invitation to fellowship and to dream again and to live again and to enjoy a meal with him. And as he sits down to eat, he sees set before him bread and fish. And Jesus reminds Peter, do you remember? This time there were seven of you. You didn't have anything. I didn't need your stuff, but I made you breakfast. Do you remember that other time? You weren't in the Galilean Sea, but you were in the Galilean countryside. All those people, not only seven, but there were 12 of you. You didn't have anything. And there were 5,000 men and other hungry women and children. But what happened? Out of your nothingness, a little boy came out and I took that. And I gave you bread and fish to eat for days. Not because of what you brought, but in spite of what you did not bring to me. Listen, your your, your nets are empty. Your heart is empty. You feel like you've got nothing to give to me. That spiritual poverty is the entry point to receiving the power of God. The first thing Jesus said when he began preaching, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And only when you get to that place of I've got nothing to offer to you, but my broken pieces of my life, my failures, my empty net, nothing, Jesus. But whatever I have, I give to you. Jesus says, I'll make a miracle out of your life still. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, then yeah, Peter Peter could say, yeah, it's your fault, Peter. Jesus died. That's it. But because he rose again, he gave Peter a choice. He said, the story is not over. It didn't end with your failure. The story continues and it's being rewritten. Would you give your failures to me? Would you give your empty nets? Would you give your empty promises? Would you give your empty heart? And I'll take it because I don't remember. I don't think first and foremost about those failures. Jesus is reminding Peter of those times in the past. Remember the laughs. Remember the tears of joy. Remember the miracles that you've seen. Remember the things that I did in your life. Remember the calling that I gave to you and let that memory, okay? If I was dead, that memory would just be a distant memory and a nostalgic longing for something. But because I'm alive, these dreams are still alive for everyone who's failed, for everyone who's blown it, for everyone who feels like they've wasted it. Jesus says, I'm here. I see that stuff and I'll deal with that later, but it's love that leads, and it's my kindness that leads to repentance. The invitation for Peter is the same invitation for you and for me today. He says, come, join me. Let's eat breakfast together. I want to restore a right relationship. Would you come? Would you eat with him? Would you have breakfast by the beach with our Savior? Let's pray together. Let's bring our empty nets before the Lord. Let's bring our places of failure. Let's bring our broken commitments. And let's take all these broken pieces. And instead of trying to build something out of them ourselves, let's give them to Jesus. He takes those things. And in place of that brokenness, he pours his spirit, the beauty of the gospel, a treasure of treasures beyond all measure into these broken jars of clay. And he says, will you come back to me? Would you meet with me? Would you allow me to minister to your heart? Would you hear the call again to come and follow me? Let's pray together for a minute. It's bringing our honest hearts before the Lord. Say, Jesus, I want you. I don't know how. I didn't know how to come to you. But I realize that you've already come to me. You've already come to me. And you invite me to come and sit with you. And so here I am. Would you lead me? Would you accept me? Would you take me now? Let's spend a minute like that praying. Just meeting with the Lord for a few moments before I close this part of our time in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for a grace and an acceptance that isn't based on how fast we can swim to you or how quickly we can come to defend your honor, but an acceptance and an embrace and a welcome, independent of our doing, because of Christ, his perfect love and righteousness given to us, that we can come to you. Thank you that every morning when we wake up, Jesus, you provide breakfast in bed for us. You want us to come and meet with you. What a gift to know that you wait for us, you long for us, even in our failures, so that we might be restored in you. Lord, help us to take those steps, even now through prayer, to say, Jesus, I'm coming back. I'm going to fail but more important than my failure is what I do after. And Lord, help me by grace to get up each time and to go back to you. Thank you so much for loving Peter in that way, for in Peter we see ourselves. Thank you for loving us in a way far beyond what we could ever deserve. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. And We pray all these things in Jesus' name.